This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. It is 5.08. You're listening to the Evening Edition with Sharmila and Lynn. First up today, how can our bus system be improved? So this comes by way of Transport Minister Anthony Lok, um, and specifically about stage bus operators. So he said that those operators who are receiving federal government subsidies through the Interim Stage Bus Support Fund, that is ISBSF, uh, will now be subjected to tighter standards. So beyond just merely operating the number of trips that are already agreed on, these operators must now observe a key performance indicator, a KPI, that will be linked crucially to punctuality. This was said yesterday as he unveiled measures to incentivize operators to provide efficient service to people who are reliant on public transport, particularly in rural areas. Now, stage buses specifically uh, refer to, um, or rather they're also known as intercity bus Mara liners, um, and they're not aimed uh, at profit alone. They're also geared towards providing social services, particularly connectivity in rural areas. And according to the website, there are 79 routes across the whole of Peninsular Malaysia. So it does form uh, a really important function when it comes to transport, connection and so on, particularly outside of the urban centres. Now, Lynn, you mentioned the ISBF or the Interim Stage Bus Support Fund. This was introduced back in 2012 to help stage bus operators cover their daily operating costs, um, going back to the fact that they're not strictly just for profit. Um, And it allows them to continue services on routes that are viewed as less profitable. Uh, This is where the government subsidy comes in. And, you know, it serves a number of functions, right? A number of residents in rural areas who can't afford their own vehicles, can't drive or can't afford e-hailing or taxi fares do rely a lot on stage buses to get around. So this, the ISPSF, I think, is a way of acknowledging that profit when it comes to public transport simply can't be everything. And that, in fact, because it is a public service, even if it is not the most profitable route, as long as there is a public need, it still needs to be supported and provided. Now, as far as how that punctuality is going to come in, um, for the new contracts that will be signed, the government will be inserting clauses to ensure this. uh, And the minister said that operators will now need to achieve adherence to their schedule for at least 80% of the number of daily trips. And a failure to comply would mean that that particular company is not going to be eligible to receive payment. Um, He also said that the government will be making it compulsory for cashless transactions for fares and operators will receive financial aid to install the equipment to make this happen and that's up to a maximum of 450 ringgit per month. The whole point of cashless payments is to ensure that there will no longer be losses in revenue uh, from the cash box. It is an interesting concept, right? The notion that, okay, we are giving you subsidies. Um, we understand the role that this, these bus systems play. However, if you are receiving subsidies from us, then there are going to be KPIs that you need to meet. Um, I, I do think, of course, that this might be a little bit easier to implement when there is that sort of direct expectation and a reward system, or not a reward system, but I suppose a, um, a, a system of accountability in place. But I think where, to me, this is interesting is is whether something like this can be extended in a larger sense to all our bus systems. Because the whole point uh, about public transport ideally is that it, it would run well as a whole, as a whole cohesive piece. And um, so I, I don't want to take away from the importance of stage buses and uh, how crucial it is for the areas that they service for them to be you know, doing well. Uh, and I think that 
if you look at the mechanism by which the government is trying to ensure this happens, I don't know if this extends to all buses. But I agree with you that this notion of punctuality, it feels so obvious that it, it, it almost feels as if it shouldn't need to be said. And yet here we are. So we are talking about uh, new KPIs for our stage bus operators, uh, among them punctuality being one of the KPIs that they have to meet. But we'd like to hear from you. What improvements would you like to see in our buses? You can call double seven double three two nine hundred, send us a voice note or WhatsApp zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Uh, very shortly, we'll be speaking with transport activist Bernard Chong. So keep it here, BFM eighty nine point nine. Build Fairer Malaysia, BFM 89.9, The Business Station. It is 5.13. You're listening to the Evening Edition with Sharmila and Lynn. And we're talking about um, news that stage bus operators uh, who are receiving uh, government subsidies will now be subjected to uh, specific KPIs, including punctuality. So uh, we would like to hear from you. What improvements would you like to see in our bus systems? You can call double seven double three two nine hundred, send us a voice note or WhatsApp zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Joining us now is transport activist Bernard Chong. Bernard, good to have you with us. Thank you for having me. So the Transport Minister has announced that stage buses that receive government subsidies will now be subjected to higher standards uh, involving an emphasis on punctuality. Could you talk to us about the kind of issues that our bus services have when it comes to adhering to schedules? So in terms of the stage bus system, um, what we tend to see is that bus services are just not running as per schedule. We've got late starts on the depot. Uh, currently, we are also seeing driver shortages and bus shortages as assets like buses are expiring uh, because they're coming to the end of life. And stage buses tend to be quite old buses as well, especially up north. Um, you know, we and as a result of old assets just being sweated, as we as we say, we are ten, we're tending to see them break down more. And as a result, there's just less reliability in the system as a whole, and there is uh, there is no incentive for stage bus operators to up their game in terms of ensuring a good passenger experience. So specifically, where does the lack of punctuality come from? What issues are we looking at here from the perspective of the operators? Yeah. So most of most of it is just basically how how services are scheduled and how services are operated and how standards are enforced. There is no one single standard for stage bus operations because they're all negotiated through contracts. It's The contracts are not really visible to us as well. So there's no transparency in the system in the sense that we don't know what their on-time performance looks like. We don't know what their service delivery metrics looks like. And we don't know what else they're being measured on in terms of the passenger experience. So in terms of the operators, that sort of lax system breeds mediocrity in the sense that you know there is no... A metric that's keeping them accountable in trying to improve services. And as a result, they just get away with just serving for the sake of serving rather than actually creating a better service for all. Now, the stage bus system uh, obviously serves an important function when it comes to connectivity, particularly in rural areas. But what are some of the primary issues that people in these areas have when it comes to public transport? Yeah, uh, not to centre myself in this conversation, but uh, this this is actually a good insight into, you know, for example, my grandmother lives in Tapa. So Tapa is uh, Perak, Tengah, 
kind of. Uh, and what we tend to see, especially in rural areas, is that um, people have access, have issues connecting to services and to, you know, uh, opportunities for social activity. Like for example, you know, health impacts. We tend to see that a lot because, for example, for for rural regions. Accessing your GP isn't just a walk in the street. Sometimes it can be kilometers away. So a stage bus service that's reliable will help people bridge a gap between their home and a pharmacy and the primary doctor and specialist care without the need, without the burden of having to own a car and trying to force themselves to drive a car. You know, especially when when you're uh, when there's a person with disability or when someone's quite old and you're not able to drive anymore. So because of that lack of connectivity that you know health outcomes are worse off in rural areas education outcomes are worse off in rural areas even accessing the bank is a struggle and accessing government services that people actually need especially during covid we saw multiple stories of people just being isolated at home because they just couldn't get out of the house and actually access services because there is no way other than a bus or praying that someone has a car and I mean, you kind of touched on it right at the end there, but generally speaking, what other options do they then have to resort to? Goodwill is what I always say. <laughs> um, my grandmother relied on a lot of goodwill to get through COVID, to access services she needed. And it's the same with a lot of rural areas. A lot of people who don't have access to these services, they'll go to their neighbours or they'll just find a friend who can drive or who has who has a mode of transport to get them to the services they need to go in some places is more drastic than others you know like for example if you're in a really rural area like you know between kampa and like mambang diawan that's that's quite a big uh you know uh connectivity gap whereas like in more concentrated areas like the center of kampa or tapa itself at least everything's closer so the further you go and the more remote your community the worse off the impacts so we have, I mean, we have other questions about the ISBF and, and so on and the KPI, but um, just to build on your point there, um, does this system work, this stage bus system for our rural areas or are there other options that we should be looking at? The stage bus system has been a thing that's just existed, you know, way, like even way before Medeka. Um, and the system at one point does work. There are people that still rely on it to this day to get from one remote community to another you know at, at one point people found it reliable enough to use that service that they were on and up and up until until we hit the you know the mid 2000s and you know and then we started to see the service degrade as people also migrated out of rural areas so the fair the fair box revenue isn't as high um, you know, there, there might be other systems like, for example, on-demand bus systems, but the thing with on-demand bus systems is they still hit a physical capacity where they try to serve everyone and then they do it really badly because there, there is no consistent route. Whereas with a consistent stage bus service that's timetabled and has a consistent fare system, the predictability makes it easier for people to use the system rather than trying to fumble on the phone waiting for a next, you know, on-demand bus ride. So what the government is planning to do in this instance is to insert clauses in the new ISBSF contracts to ensure that there is punctuality in operators who fail to comply. Uh, that means that the company will then not receive payment. What do you make of this? Is it a step in the right direction? It is a very good step in the right direction with some caveats. So what 
what uh, you know, a minister Anthony Locke is trying to do here is what I like to call the London style contract, uh, where they are in, they're using um, metrics to incentivize um, or penalize uh, bus operators for delivering good or bad service. So there's a cost incentive contract in London and in other places where they're starting to roll this out, like in Manchester and even in Sydney, we're starting to see the benefits of it uh, you know, come about where services have to progress and do better at every contract or else they risk losing the contract. So there is the incentive to make sure your on-time performance is like you're meeting the special on-time performance, you're meeting service delivery standards. There are even standards, for example, for passenger information and ensuring that your escalators work uh, if let's say you're a metro system. So this is a very good step in the right direction. But the reason why I say there's a caveat is because you need to define your metrics. Um, if you don't define your metrics well, you still get that loose contract issue that we started off with, where people are saying, oh, it's late. But technically, if you look at the contract, it's not. You know, Technically, I delivered the service, but I've, cut, I've blown through three stations. So I still deliver the service, but people are still angry at me. So that the contracts need to be tough in the sense that it has to make sure that people can't wiggle their way through, you know, delivering a good service. Now, we've been talking about this through the lens of stage buses, but do these sorts of KPIs for punctuality exist with other bus services in Malaysia and should they? Um, I can't really comment on other bus services in Malaysia because I don't have that kind of in-depth look at the moment, but they should in the sense that, for example, in uh, local bus services, especially in KL, Kuantan, and wherever Prasarana operates, you know, there, there is a higher expectation of passenger experience and on-time performance because these services are critical in getting the city moving again, especially now, you know, our cities are getting more gridlocked, nothing's moving. So those contracts are also very useful in these situations because now we can say to people, these are the metrics that are being measured on. And this is how you keep us accountable. When you pay your fare, we either get penalized or we benefit because we are meeting those, we are meeting or not meeting those metrics. So it works both in a regional sense and also in an urban sense as well. But mostly we tend to see it used in an urban sense. So if we look at the stage buses, some of the other improvements being made include making it compulsory for cashless transactions with financial aid to operators uh, given to install necessary equipment here. What benefit would this have in terms of making our public transport systems more efficient? Okay, so again, I've got to open up a caveat. We don't know how that new open payment system looks like for now. Uh, but if I can hazard a guess, uh, a guess it might be something along the lines of QR code payments, debit or credit cards, you know, um, it's a good way of creating a unified payment system without having to go through the rigmarole of creating one, like for example, Touch and Go, or in Melbourne's case, MyKey. Um, but the problem is accessibility. For If people are expected to use cashless transactions, there needs to be, for example, places to top up their uh, you know, their, their, their card or QR code um, unless if they're using a debit credit card. And that also depends on whether someone has a debit or credit card. People in rural areas, especially in Tapa, most of them still use passbooks. You know, you, they can't touch a passbook on when they're trying to get on a bus. So, you know, there still needs to be a bit more research into how we can implement these systems so that it is both 
accessible, but also reduces the burden on the operators to handle fair handling equipment like, you know, the cash box that they've got to lug around to the ATM and then just, you know, trying to figure out how to do all the accounting. So that's what they're trying to remove, you know, that cost of having to deal with the fares themselves. But you have to do it in an accessible way so that people can actually benefit from it. So you mentioned earlier the need for um, effective contracts. Um, so in this, uh, with the stage buses, a three-year contract has now also been introduced. And this is a step up from the previous two-year contracts. But crucially, only companies that score 70% in the performance evaluation will get that three-year contract, while the ones who score less will be given a one-year contract. What did you make of this sort of arrangement? Um, it's an interesting tool to sort of incentivize companies to do better so they get a longer contract. The more the more contract time you get, the more fair box revenue you get to collect, the more financial certainty you have to be able to plan, you know, how you're going to grow your assets, like for example, you know, better buses, more staff. So it's a it's an interesting way of uh, ensuring that people keep to their KPIs. You uh, I would like to see what happens within the stage bus environment, what they end up doing. Um, hopefully that brings us into the right direction in terms of improving services in regional areas. Separately, uh, Anthony Lok also announced that Prasarana will display publicly how it is meeting its KPI beginning in May. This would include weekly reports on the maintenance of facilities, escalators and lifts along with ridership. Why is this kind of transparency important? So this transparency works in, a, in multiple different ways. For the operator, this is good transparency for business planning. If you want to prioritise infrastructure improvements, you need data to guide that. Um, an example I love to refer to is the case of Andy Byford working in the Metropolitan Transit Authority of New York. He's He had to basically fix a subway system with a 60% um, you know, on time rate. And within about a year, he brought that 60% to 90% because he was able to to start collecting data on things like train speed, mean kilometers between failure, which is what Prasarana is proposing to do now as well. You know, uh, reliability of escalators, elevators. And from there, they were able to sort of plot out, okay, so these are the things we need to start improving on immediately, and they can just prioritize things from there. So that's a good thing for the operator. Smart investments at the right time, and also proactive investments before things break. For us, it's about keeping, you know, the, the public is able to keep operators accountable. You know, we are setting out our KPIs. We want you to hold us accountable for the service we provide. You know, if our KPIs look bad, we want to be called out. So that kind of transparency is important. That openness from the operator for the public to call them out is important. And for researchers as well, it allows us to have more data to sort to, to do more deeper analysis on. Uh, for example, accessibility to stations. What does this mean from a health standpoint? You know, when people have more access to public transport, what does excess you know, travel time do to you know a, a person's day in terms of uh, you know mental health? So that kind of open data allows us to do more and to inform better transport policy through the open research you're able to do with the data we have now. And finally, coming back to the operator, it make it allows them to start planning for the future, coming up with strategies, and hopefully, I'd like to see this from Prasarana, a service improvement plan with simple strategies to speed up service, to improve the reliability of service, and to expand service where it's needed.
Bernard, thanks for speaking with us today. Yeah, thank you as always. That was transport activist Bernard Chong uh, speaking to us about uh, the latest news out of the transport ministry that stage buses will be required to keep to KPIs, uh, including being on time, punctuality. So we'd like to hear from you. What improvements would you like to see in our buses? You can call double seven double three two nine hundred, send us a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio. We'll be back after this for your messages. So keep it here, BFM 89.9. Brave Finance Managers, BFM 89.9. It is 5.38. You're listening to the Evening Edition with Sharmila and Lynn. And we've been talking about new KPIs for the stage buses, uh, specifically that uh, they have to be punctual. Uh, and so we've been asking you, what improvements would you like to see in our buses in general? You can call double seven double three two nine hundred, send us a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Let's start with a voice note. This is from FH. I think the issue with our bus system in Malaysia uh, is probably on the the effectiveness of the use of the bus is, itself. Because in Malaysia, I think the government is uh, mainly, uh, when they're making the plan, they are promoting the use of car and other other transport, like private transport system, instead of the use of uh, public transport. Uh, especially the bus and uh, I think it was back uh, uh, way before there is a, uh, an initiative I think try to install the tracker on the bus uh, to ensure that the bus uh, comes uh, at the right time uh, and there's no delay in their service but then the the bus on the bus driver uh, not agree to the system because they find it quite a hassle and they protest about it. And I think uh, this kind of uh, mentality we need to change first before we implement any system to improve uh, the public transportation because to encourage a user to use the public transport, especially the bus, I think uh, we need some mechanism to support uh, the whole system first and especially to change the ideas that our public transportation is is better and uh, uh, reliable to the user. Thank you. FH, thank you for that. Um, a number of things there that I found really interesting. Um, I... I think I relate to the point you're making about how buses are often viewed as the less desirable mode of transport. Um, I mean, a lot of people I know who would be quite happy taking the MRT and the LRT would still say, oh, I don't really think I'll take the bus. I'd rather take a car or so on. And that's actually quite different uh, than what we'd find in many other large cities. Well, yes, because... Buses get you really much closer to where you need to go, mm. by and large. It stops more often. Um, and so in a metropolitan setup, which I know, you know, stage buses is not exactly what we're talking about. But the whole idea of buses and why they're often talked about in terms of last mile is because they get you from sh within shorter distances. I think though, uh, FH, to your other point, the the mindset shift and how it can be done in a way that actually takes everybody into account or actually moves everybody together at the same time is correct. Because I, 
I don't want to sound too cynical, but this is Malaysia. And we have also seen what happens when you have a top-down initiative and then the people who are supposed to execute just go, well, no, this doesn't make sense to us, so we're not going to do it. <laughs> uh, we also have, uh, let's see, Misi, who says, make payment for public transport fares available in cash as well as digital. My 87-year-old aunt used to be quite independent. She can take the usual cabs and bus services. But now with all these digital modes of payment, for the fares, she had to wait for the convenience of her children to be able to ferry her around. As they're working, she hardly leaves her home nowadays. She's lost not only her mobility, but uh, but her mind is not as agile as before. As a senior citizen myself, I dread the day when I would be hampered like she is and dependent on my children who have their own busy schedules. This actually makes me really sad um, because I can understand how much of a um, how difficult it can be to suddenly have to adapt to everything being digital payment. So I agree with this. I was thinking, I don't have an answer because I, I think that I can understand why from the perspective of the government, the authorities, whoever it may be, there would be an understandable push towards cashlessness. Um, it is, in theory, the future. It is, in theory, the way that we're all going to pay moving forward. And so, therefore, I think the, the theory here is, well, we have to put it in place and people will just have to get used to it. But then, Mizi, you're right. When you hear stories like this and, and how the, the learning curve is so steep, I think, um, and mm. needs to accommodate so many different aspects, being on an app and then figuring out how to transfer money all of that makes it very complicated. The other thing I will say, um, and I'm going to loan a phrase from Bernard, our guest, and say not to center myself in this conversation, but I was at a place today that did cashless payment only. So that's what they said they did. I'm going to tell you that I paid cash to get out. I didn't have cash on me. I had to go get it. And that's because when I was heading out with this very changi parking machine, which supposedly would just scan my license plate and tell me how much I owed... Um, they, which uh, they hadn't said, or rather they'd said earlier on that they would accept debit credit. And when I got to the exit, that wasn't available and it was only touch and go. And then in that locale, there was nowhere to top up your touch and go. Mm. I've encountered this before and, and I would say you and I are probably a little bit more adept at dealing with digital payments and so on than many people might be. I was ready to go cashless. The system did not permit me to. And then the system did not furthermore support, I have a card, but if you don't give me a way to top it up, then what am I supposed to do? So I think, um, Mizi, to your point, we are a ways yet from anybody, I don't care who, being able to say, we can guarantee that going 100% cashless will present no problems. We also have Andrew actually just making a pretty simple point: make it a first world make it a first world country facility first, and then people will use, including covered walkways and last mile consist last mile uh, consistent frequency. I agree with that. Um, I would, however, tie it back to our cashless payment point. Does going first world mean that we have to go cashless? So I, I don't think so. I feel like it isn't too much of an ask that there be the option of paying by uh, cash, but perhaps something that doesn't require as much uh, manpower and, and, and uh, resources, which is exactly the reason towards moving, uh, moving towards cashless, right? 
I really like this point from Azfa, who says one way to improve the bus system is to have actual users of said system design the routes. Um, the ones that we have right now are not really user friendly. So you take, for example, 753, a route that is a loop in Shah Alam. They should have a counter loop so people don't have to travel a full circle should they want to go a station backward. 753 is a route that was designed by SPAD. <laughs> that last sentence, I think, added just the right amount of sting to, to that idea. Uh, but, you know, that is actually such a good idea as far. Um, of course, having hundreds and, and, and thousands of citizens weighing in on a bus route may not be feasible, but I certainly think that getting frequent users um, of a particular uh, route absolutely makes so much sense. It makes sense. And I think it goes back to what we said earlier, which is just, you know, having more consult, or not earlier, when I say earlier, I mean all the time, just having consultation with the people you actually want to serve would go a long way. We do have a voice note that's come in. This is from Fuzzly. Hi, guys. So um, thinking about buses in public transport, um, I think one problem buses have with punctuality is also partly because they're subject to the same traffic that cars are. So I've been watching, I've been looking at the Sunway BRT and it reminds me a lot of the Adelaide's Oban in uh, South Australia. So um, how it works is basically that buses do go on the road, but, but they also have sort of bus rails, a bus rail system where, buses that only, where only buses can go and allows them to bypass the main traffic to get people to main hubs. So I'm just wondering if it's, I mean, if it's worth looking at for the government to extend the BRT system and you know sort of create a second a bus only uh, rail transit that's a, a sort of that kind of system i know it's a i mean it that would allow the buses to bypass main traffic connect from hub to hub and i don't know uh, avoid the main traffic and improve punctuality and service and all that stuff i mean i acknowledge that it's a it's a nightmare plan wise uh, land acquisition, infrastructure building, and uh, not to mention the, what you'd have to get rid of along the way. So yeah, but still might be something uh, worth looking at in, in the long term. Fazli, thank you for that. Um, I am a big fan of BRT systems. I first encountered them in Jakarta, and this was like 15 years ago. Uh, and I remember being just sort of amazed that this existed. So hard agree. I'm feeling very happy because I have a soft spot for the Oban, uh, which mm. Fazli talked about in Adelaide. I have family who live there. So uh, visiting, I, I ride the Oban fairly often and I just love it. It's uh, it's also kind of trippy because it's a bus on rails. I know. <laughs> you know, it, you know it it's a bus, you in... but your brain can't process what it exactly is. Because of the motion yeah. when you're on it. it. It's just, it's a strange one. We have another voice note as well. This is from uh, Azimi. IBFM, I just wanted to give my opinion on bus stops, not not necessarily on buses. I uh, just wanted to share two things. The first one is I think bus stops should have a screen that indicates the how many minutes the bus is expected to arrive at the particular station. I think a lot of developed countries um, have this feature in their bus stops, such as Tokyo, um, etc. Aside from that, I think uh, enforcement should be more stricter with regard to cars that park at bus stops or even um, remain idle at the bus stops it really really um, obstructs traffic when buses have to eat up on the um, on the uh, main way because they're not able to utilize 
the area that is meant for them to stop. Thank you. Thank you, Azimi. Um, agree once again. Um, and I think a really good example of how it's not just about the buses and how they run, but in fact, the whole infrastructure that you're building around them. I would add on to that, that bus stops should be covered and comfortable. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, this is something that we've spoken about elsewhere, but honestly, waiting for a bus at noon is, in our country, is not a, a fun thing, especially when you don't know when it's coming, if it's already come, because again, that screen doesn't yet exist. Um, going back to the point about cashlessness. So um, Michael says, regarding cashless payments, I consider myself rather savvy being a system developer. I was recently at a public hospital, which has a parking, ah, this, my bane, mm -hmm. that scans your number plate and then the payment website is not immediately clear how you should use it. It's poor UX. An older couple in their 40s, 50s, so not too old actually, approached me distressed, hoping I could help them with the payment. They would reimburse me in cash. They were clearly desperate. And, unhappy, and distressed, um, public hospitals are not exactly the best place to do these as not everyone has the right smartphone, data plan and familiarity. Uh, I completely agree. And, and you know, this really doesn't have much to do only with age, right? It has to do with the fact that it takes a while to get to used to a system that you're not you're not familiar with and expecting people to relearn every space they might go into because they choose to use a different system is really not logical, yeah, uh, I also think that the part about public hospitals is especially salient because yes. the system should be easy to use for people of all, I mean, all ages, um, all different groups, but also, you know, not assuming that everyone's going to be calm and happy and patient trying to figure out how to get out of a parking lot in a hospital. Legion says, uh, improvement for buses have traffic surcharges and inner city charges for private vehicles like they do in central London. This was started by the then mayor of London, Boris Johnson. Public buses were exempted from this and increased bus routes. Mm, I'm thinking of Singapore as well and how expensive it is to own a car. Yes, uh, to drive, mm. to park, actually across yes. the board. To pay and your road tax. Exactly. So keep your thoughts coming. Uh, you can call us, you can send us a voice note, you can WhatsApp us, you can tweet us. Keep it here. BFM 89.9. Nine. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.